Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2011 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by TLO's editor David Collingridge, which is terrific. And this month we're going to focus specifically on a very interesting article in the August issue and it concerns dignity therapy within the context of end-of-life care in the cancer setting. So in a couple of minutes you can hear me interviewing one of the authors of that study, Professor Harvey Chochinov from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. But just before that, David, walk us through some of the other highlights from the August issue. Thank you, Richard. Yes, we have a bumper issue this month with seven research articles and two reviews and a a real myriad of news and opinions. So throughout the issue, we have reports on the optimal phase three trial that looked at the role of elotinib as first-line therapy for patients with advanced EGFR mutation-positive non-small cell lung cancer. We have the MRC Myeloma 9 trial comparing zoledronic acid with chondronic acid for skeletal morbidity in patients with multiple myeloma, a phase 3 trial on bortezomab plus rituximab for follicular lymphoma, and an analysis of biomarkers in the FLEX3 lung cancer trial. Elsewhere, we have an article on the controversial issue of extrapleural pneumonectomy versus no extrapleural pneumonectomy for patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma plus papers on the relation between height and cancer incidence in the Million Women study and the management of uncommon chemotherapy-induced emergencies. We also have provocative news stories from the US on whether whistleblowers are being intimidated and face undue retaliation and whether the EPA's chemical carcinogenicity and toxicity assessment program is being inappropriately coerced by industry. The first trial you mentioned, the optimal study, this is good news in lung cancer, isn't it? This is very good news because it now gives another drug option in the first-line setting, in addition to gefetinib for EGFR mutant patients. And let's now hear more about an unusual trial of a interesting subject, and that is dignity therapy, its potential use in the end-of-life care setting in oncology. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the study in the August issue, Professor Harvey Chochinov. Professor Chochinov, many thanks indeed for talking to the Lancet Oncology. First of all, can you tell us what is the standard care given to to patients who are terminally ill? There, I'm afraid we have both a good news and and bad news story. The good news is that palliative care and palliative medicine, I think, has taken uh, very seriously the idea that its mandate should include attention to physical, psychological, spiritual and existential areas of uh, patient distress and patient concern. However, outside of the field of palliative medicine, I'm afraid that uh, end-of-life care tends to be rather shoddy. It really is highly variable. There are some programs and some clinicians who certainly deliver uh, wonderful and exemplary care, but I'm afraid it really is is uneven. What happens is that uh, psychological care, uh, especially when time is pressing, is probably the first to be left to the wayside. Do tell us a bit more about dignity therapy. This sounds like a very interesting concept. How does it differ from other types of therapy then? Well, the idea of dignity therapy basically came about because of some research that our group has been doing for for a number of years. But in essence, some of the findings that we've had uh, in studies of patients near end of life suggest that uh, of the various different losses that patients uh, experience, feeling a loss of worth, loss of hope, loss of meaning, those are all things that uh, many patients near end of life will suffer with. And as well, many patients told us that one of the issues that causes them angst is this idea that uh, their life won't have had some ultimate meaning or purpose. There won't be a, a lasting influence beyond the event of their death. 
And so it was on the basis of that that we decided it would make a lot of sense for us to engage patients in a brief psychological intervention in which we would have them engage in conversations. And these would be recorded conversations and conversations that really pertain to the things that they feel needed said. In some instances, it might be biographical. In some instances, it may be words of wisdom that they want to pass along or specific hopes, wishes, or dreams that they want to share with, uh, with loved ones and the people they care about who are about to be bereft. Those transcribed interviews uh, are then edited so that we can turn what is sometimes a, a meandering dialogue into a, a more pristine narrative that is returned to the patient for them to then give or bequeath to a family member or friend of their choosing. Do go on and, and tell us about the design and obviously the results of this randomized trial. How did you go about this study? Well, this was a, uh, an international randomized control trial. It took place on the basis of, a, of an earlier study that happened uh, between colleagues here in, uh, in Winnipeg and in Perth, Australia. That initial study, a phase one study, showed overwhelmingly that patients seemed to, uh, to benefit from, uh, from dignity therapy, enhanced their sense of meaning, purpose, will to live, and certainly help their family members. But we wanted to be able to really generate gold standard evidence, so we did a randomized control trial. It took place in three countries, here in Canada, in the United States, and again with our Australian colleagues. We ended up randomizing 441 patients across three arms. Those arms consisted of dignity therapy, as I've described it to you, standard palliative care, and of course every patient in the study had access to you know, comprehensive quality standard uh, palliative end-of-life care. And then a third arm was something that we called uh, client-centered care. And this essentially was uh, an arm that was able to control for face-to-face -face time between a compassionate healthcare provider and the, the patient. We wanted to eliminate the possibility that perhaps it's just you know, the presence of an individual there paying attention uh, to the patient that might be accounting for the, uh, the salutary effects of dignity therapy. Unlike dignity therapy, the client-centered arm asked patients questions that we called here-now focused. So these were questions that pertain to uh, their illness, how they experienced it, what was helping, what was still uh, a challenge. Of the 441 patients who were randomized, there were 326 patients who actually were able to, uh, to complete the trial. What we found, and this is uh, important, I think, for readers, that on our primary outcomes, we did not find differences across the three arms. Now, it's important to explain that the standard measures that we were using were measures that were looking for various dimensions of psychosocial distress. The reason I think that we uh, had were, were challenged in finding any differences is that the, uh, the baseline level of distress within this study group was really quite low. Uh, there was no critical threshold that we asked patients to meet before gaining entry to the study. So it's a bit like how do you show that you can improve distress where baseline distress at the outset is actually relatively low. On the other hand, what we also did to test the, uh, the efficacy and the impact of dignity therapy is uh, across all three arms of the study, patients filled out an identical post-study survey. This survey asked uh, 23 questions uh, about their experience of being in the study, uh, their, the impact the intervention had on them. 
And these 23 questions asked everything from whether or not the intervention was helpful to whether or not it improved their overall psychosocial care, whether or not it was a satisfactory experience. On all 23 items, Dignity Therapy outperformed both other arms, and on five specific outcomes, Dignity Therapy very uh, substantively outperformed both arms, including the fact that the, the intervention was experienced as helpful to them, it improved their quality of life, it enhanced their sense of dignity. They certainly said that it, uh, it helped their family or would be of help to their family, and in fact, it changed the way that their family could see or appreciate them. Thank you very much. So whilst the primary outcome, therefore, wasn't statistically significant, do you think from the secondary outcomes you've got some real messages coming out of the study? And if so, what are those messages for doctors and psychiatrists? What does the future hold, do you think, for dignity therapy? I think the, uh, the outcomes of the study certainly were, uh, were highly significant. And uh, what do they say? I, I think they say that if we're going to uh, be offering um, appropriate uh, psychological care and support for patients, then, then paying attention to ways of enhancing patient sense of meaning and purpose, you know, giving patients a, uh, a sense that uh, they continue to matter um, and what they have to say continues to matter. Uh, dignity therapy, of course, is uh, only one way of being able to, uh, to offer that, and there are certainly uh, uh, many other ways in which that can be accomplished. The other thing that dignity therapy is able to offer, of course, is this whole notion of what we call generativity, able to give patients a sense that what they have to say and their thoughts and feelings may very well even transcend the events of their death. What is the future of dignity therapy? I know of uh, at least a half a dozen trials or more that are taking place uh, worldwide. There are currently studies that are either happening or being planned in, uh, in Scotland, England, Portugal, uh, Sweden, Denmark. Uh, there are some Chinese colleagues who I know are also studying uh, issues related to, uh, to dignity and dignity-conserving care. On the basis uh, of that data, we will learn more about the various applications of dignity therapy in the context of end-of-life care. But just a, f a final add-on to that, then, do you think there's enough evidence from the, from the secondary outcomes of this study to, to actually influence practice at the moment? Or, or are you saying that we need more data from more research before we can change practice here? No, I think on the basis of the secondary outcomes, and again, the, uh, the outcomes were highly significant, we can say, I think, with, uh, with reasonable confidence, dignity therapy seems to enhance end-of-life experience. We outline quite clearly in the paper that for issues like outright depression, uh, desire for death, or suicidality, currently the evidence, uh, I don't think, is there for us to be uh, offering dignity therapy as a primary intervention. Well, it's fascinating area, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about it in the future. Professor Harvey Chochinov from the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet Oncology. Thank you for your interest. So many thanks for listening, and thank you, David. Thank you. See you next time.